So I've also had a lot of surgeries, and that's fun. I actually had the first one in Poland at eight months, and that was in Lublin. Because I was an orphan, and I was still in the process of being adopted, they actually did it for free, which was amazing, because no one was really going to be able to pay for it at that point. Um, So they took my lenses out, and they don't put lens implants in babies. Like, you just take them out, and then you have what's called a fakia, which is when you don't have lenses. So mine were taken out, and then... When I got to America, I had another surgery here. And he kind of cleaned it up. And my mom said, like, after that, she noticed a huge difference. Like, I was playing with my toys more and stuff. So I had two really close to each other as a long-winded answer. Hey there, and welcome to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about chronic illness, disability, medical traumas, and everyday uncomfortable healthcare experiences. My name is Kara Gale. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. Nothing said on this show or in any of its associated content should be considered medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I wish you a lot of luck. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you want more of In Sickness and In Health, you can find us in your podcast feeds on insicknesspod.com and on social media at InSicknessPod. Please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. Let us know what you think of InSickness and InHealth so far, and I hope you enjoy this episode. In this week's episode of the podcast, I talked to Beata, who was adopted from Poland by a family from Buffalo, New York. She has vision impairment because she was born with cataracts and developed glaucoma during childhood, both of which are conditions affecting eyesight. Beata is now dealing with Hashimoto's disease, a condition of the immune system that attacks the thyroid gland, causing inflammation and interfering with its ability to produce thyroid hormones. Beata is on the board of Glaucoma Eyes, a non-governmental organization that offers worldwide patient support to people who live with glaucoma. They're working to raise awareness for glaucoma internationally and supporting educational programs for patients, doctors, and other medical staff. I asked Beata to explain a bit about glaucoma and cataracts and what it's like to be a young person with a, quote, old people disease. It's really interesting because some people with glaucoma, um, they catch it really early and they have really good vision. So, like, they might even have better vision than you do or than another person with just visual impairment. Um, But it's basically the fluid in your eye builds up, like, too much is produced or too much can't be um, drained out of the eye or both. And it builds up and it causes this pressure and uh, that can result in your optic nerves being damaged, which makes you lose your vision. So like the idea is to catch it as early as possible so you can start the treatment for it and prevent vision loss. But it gets tricky because some doctors don't want to treat it until there's damage. Because some people, right? (laughs) See your face? They're like, what? Because some people might have a pressure of you know, a high pressure, because normal is like maybe like 12 to 18, it depends on the person. Someone might have a pressure of 20 and have perfectly healthy eyes, like their eyes can just tolerate that pressure. And the doctor will be like, no, you're fine. And then the next time they come back, though, you might have significant damage. So it's like, when do you start treating? You know, when do you start? Because you don't want to put someone on an unnecessary medication, but you also don't want them to lose vision. And that medication might just be an eye drop, which I know for some people is like really unsettling. But for me, it's like, yeah, I put lots of those in my eyes. So I'm so (laughs) bad at them. I'm really, yeah, yeah. I have to like lay down and, and even still, I'm usually just putting it on my cheeks. 
Like I yeah. can't ever get it where <laughs> it, it's supposed to go. It happens. <laughs> I still do it. And I put like so many of them in my eyes. But um, it's really interesting because there's different types of glaucoma. And I'm learning more about them with the group I'm involved in. Like some people will have normal pressures, like what's considered normal, but they'll still be losing vision. So it's like, how do you treat them? Um, so for me, like, thankfully I haven't lost too much vision from it, but, um, they're like keeping a really close eye on everything, which is good. So usually it's treated with like eye drops to start and I'm still on two of those. And then it's treated with surgery if the drops don't work. Now is glaucoma something that does usually affect people in their adolescence or does it normally come on later in life? It normally comes on later. So like for me, I have, you know, an old people disease is like what I, you know, what I hear from people like, oh, don't usually older people get that. And um, I got it so early because I was born with cataracts. So I had my lenses removed as an infant. And then when you don't have lenses in your eyes, you're more susceptible to possibly developing glaucoma. So I was being tested for it once a year by my pediatric ophthalmologist and they found it when I was nine. Oh, okay. so. It was, I was really lucky that he was keeping an eye on it, you know, no pun intended, <laughs> yeah. um, because like I could have lost a lot more sight if he hadn't wow. found it. Uh, can you explain uh, what exactly cataracts is? Because I know some people might not sure. be familiar with that yeah. either. Sure, yeah. Cataracts is, um, it's when your lenses are clouded. So it can happen like as you get older. I'm not even sure of like the specific mechanism <laughs> that caused it, honestly. But I was born with it. I think it was just... You know, it's something that happens sometimes. Maybe there was something went wrong during pregnancy or whatever. Um, so your lenses are clouded. And I don't remember what my vision was like with cataracts because I was an infant. But you're pretty close to being blind or you're completely blind from it once they're really advanced, which mine were. Beata's interview was one of the early ones that I did, and because she mentioned that she had been waiting on some test results, I called her to follow up and see if she was able to get any more answers. That call is at the end of the episode, and we also talk about the recently published anthology of stories from adult adoptees called Flip the Script, which Beata was featured in. I've been hearing from a lot of people that they're not doing so well health-wise at this time of year. And real talk, neither am I. I'm doing really not great right now, worse than I've felt in over a year, and have been reminded of just how isolating and scary this can be, especially when there's no relief in sight. I learned last week that I've already lost two of my doctors. They've left the practice. And I'll be losing the rest of them when I have to switch to Medicaid in January, but I knew that was coming. This isn't the end of the world, but after working so hard for so long to assemble a great team of compassionate and collaborative physicians, it's quite scary to know that I have to start all over again with a dramatically reduced pool of doctors. I've also been hearing from people having insurance nightmares of their own. And tis the season for crying about health insurance. Here in the U.S., it's open enrollment season, which means that everyone needs to choose their health insurance plan for the coming year. As you probably know, it's a pretty ridiculous system that we have here. It's a system that's been broken for a very long time, continues to be very broken, and it's the patients that get caught in the middle. People have lots of ideas about what the problem with our system is, but there's no one problem. It's all a mess. Thanks to the Affordable Care Act, more people are insured than ever before, but coverage does not necessarily equal easy or affordable access to care. 
many of the cost control measures that were built into the legislation were stripped by the active opposition to the law. They may not have worked, but we'll never know. So the long trend of rising costs have continued to spiral so far out of control, I can't help but laugh maniacally every time I look at a medical bill because they are just so absurd. It's not just the U.S. that's facing difficulties with our medical system. Massive cuts in Canada, especially in Ontario, have hurt everyone involved, leaving vulnerable patients in the lurch. In the UK, there's a movement to privatize their national health system, which poses an existential threat to the care of millions. For refugees in areas affected by conflict like Syria, people are unable to get access to basic medical care, basic medical supplies, or medications, furthering the already horrific toll of that long and terrible war. I can't really say anything that might make you or me feel better about any of this and whatever current healthcare nightmare you happen to be facing. All I can do is offer solidarity in a time where we're all feeling quite raw and uncertain of what might happen next. Um, well, so far, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the glaucoma with my eyes and I'm also like vision impaired. So from like the cataracts and everything. So I have super thick glasses because I don't have lenses in my eyes. Um, and this past year I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune disease where your immune system is basically attacking your thyroid. So I was actually like really relieved to be diagnosed with that because this past winter I was just feeling like a total slug. Like I'd get home from work and I'd just go to sleep. Like I wouldn't want to eat, which is really weird for me because I always want to eat. So like what's going on? Like I kept gaining weight and it was um, finally they found that my antibodies were really high, which meant that like the autoimmune response was really high. But that's been better. Um, thankfully, like the medication they put me on has been working and I've been trying to like take different vitamins and things. Um, and I'm still kind of in the middle of different diagnoses. I've started going to a rheumatologist. So she says I have like symptoms of fibromyalgia, but so it's like, yeah, I have these aches and pains and fatigue, but you know, what do you, what's really being done about it? And my doctor, my rheumatologist suspects I might have some kind of arthritis, but I'm still waiting for a diagnosis. So we'll see. Wow, Yay, illness. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> waiting to find out what else is wrong with me. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I guess that's about it. Um, I have different, like just. I think they're all related because I have like costochondritis, like the pain mm. in my sternum and my chest yeah. and tendonitis and like all these different inflammation-itis things. But I think they're all related, like, whatever is going on and that they're trying to find out. So Yeah, costochondritis, man. It's the worst. It is. Like nothing makes it go away. And it's especially if like if I cough or sneeze, it's like the costochondritis monster is awakened. Yeah, yeah sneezing <laughs> is not fun. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I've talked to so many people who are like, oh, I went to the ER for heart pain and it was costochondritis. Like right. I think it's the number one thing that people have when they think they have yeah. a heart attack, but it's not. Yeah, which makes it interesting because I have costochondritis chronically. I have it to some degree every day and then sometimes it really yeah. flares and I'm like, yeah, me too. so how am I supposed to know when I'm having a heart attack? Yeah. <laughs> it kind of feels like that all the time, but... Exactly. You know, especially for women, we are not always taken seriously by exactly. doctors. And so it's it's actually not super uncommon for a woman to go to the ER, get diagnosed with costochondritis, and then turn out that she's actually having a heart attack. Yeah. Um, which yeah. is scary. 
That's really it scary. It is. It's definitely scary. And I'm glad, you know, obviously the, the ER has to take it seriously and they still have to do all the testing because that actually happened to me recently. Like I was having some palpitations and I was having the pain and I went in and I hadn't been to the ER in like years because I never, you know, it's not a thing like I'll go to immediate care if I think right. I have to, but I try to avoid the ER. And um, they did all the tests. They were like, nothing's wrong with you. Go home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was one of those. Yeah. Can you tell me about some of the testing that you've had done? For glaucoma, since I was young, I was having like my pressures tested with a little tonometer, which basically they numb your eyes and then they either use a tiny puff of air or this tiny little thing. I hate to say that it looks like a needle, but it sort of does. <laughs> but you don't feel it at all because your eyes are numb. I'm so used to it. Yeah. It's like the, the big Goldman thing that they use to test, which is really accurate. Sometimes they do the puffs. And then I've also had like visual, you know, it's, it's funny. It's like a little puff of air in your eye. And then yeah, you get a yeah I've had those. Like, They're terrible. I don't like yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> They're really unsettling. It's like, what? <laughs> um, it usually takes a few tries for yeah. the doctor to get it because I instinctively exactly. fall back as soon as it happens yeah, or right beforehand. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I've had, I've had a lot of like visual field tests, which is basically you stick your head in this machine and... They described it to me like a video game the first time I did it. It was not fun. I'm like, this is misleading, guys. But basically, it's to test how much vision you have peripherally. So there's these little like flashing dots of light around kind of like this dome that you're leaning into. And you have to click a button like a mouse whenever you see a flash of light. So some, And you're supposed to focus right in the center, like not move your eye around or not move your head at all. And it's to see like how much vision you have in your periphery. So they usually do one of those for me like every six months. And they're boring, but you just get through it. And hopefully it shows that you haven't lost any more peripheral vision. I also get like pictures taken of the back of my eye every year usually and like honestly those are really painful and annoying because you have to keep your eye open and there's this super bright flash of light and it's like right in your eye and it's uh it's it's really hard. Sometimes I just have to tell the technician that's doing that like just tell the doctor I couldn't do it because I'm not going to sit here and like do 20 more tries of this because it's so painful and that's supposed to show like how healthy your optic nerves are. That's about it as far as eye testing and then with the Hashimoto's they tested for the antibodies in my blood and then I had all this other stuff done like a basic you know the metabolic panel and testing for my vitamins and things like that especially like iron B12 D they want to make sure all those are good and just recently, I had a lot of testing with the rheumatologist, and that was really interesting because it was for different autoimmune things. And um, I saw that there were like a lot of antibodies in my blood in general. I'm not sure what it all means yet. I was trying to interpret it, but I haven't seen her since I did the blood work. So kind of waiting for her to help interpret all of those. Yeah, I think rheumatology is one of those fields. I, my rheumatologist actually said this to me, that it's a little bit more of an art than a science. Yeah, you know, those blood tests are, they need to be interpreted. They don't necessarily tell you black and white one way or the other. Yeah, and then I just recently had a nuclear bone scan a few days ago. To, it's supposed to show like where the inflammation is in my body. So I just had to get injected with this radioactive liquid, which was kind of interesting. And then I went in this machine and it scanned my whole body. So I'm waiting to hear about that too. But oh, nice. that was interesting. 
Yeah, I didn't realize they did that for inflammation because I, I know they do like bone scans for bone density and that sort of thing. Right, yeah. yeah. That's what I thought this was. And then I saw it was nuclear and I'm like, hmm, what's this about? So it was kind of, you have to wait a couple hours for like this stuff to spread through your body so it can kind of light up the places of inflammation. So hopefully that'll bring some kind of information. Uh, tell me about your relationship with medication. Do you have any mixed feelings about it? Mostly like, especially with glaucoma, I'm really grateful for the medication. And I have to kind of recognize sometimes like my own bias and my own perception because I hear things like, oh, I'll have to take this for the rest of my life. And my initial reaction is, so what? Yeah. Like, you're not going to live a thousand years. Like, it's not that big of a deal. You know, I understand there's some medicines out there with, like, terrible side effects. But for me personally, like, I've been putting an eye drop since I was 10. So now I'm 24. So I'm like, whatever. It's like getting up and brushing your teeth. You know, it's just, like, part of my routine. I don't want to be on, like, a ton of medications. So... Honestly, if I can kind of treat something by maybe changing something in my diet, like I'll try to do that, you know, before I try some intense new medication or whatever. Like, Mm -hmm. but um, for the most part, I'm just like really grateful it exists. Made me feel so much healthier. Like even the Synthroid I'm on for my thyroid, like I've lost weight since I started taking that. I have more energy. Like, yay, this is great. So um, I guess... I would just say I'm like mostly really grateful it exists. Like if I was alive 50 years ago, there weren't these medications out there. And it's like, wow. Yeah, (laughs) it's pretty incredible. Yeah, because for me, I avoided taking medication for a really long time for exactly that reason that you said of like, I don't want to be on medication for the rest of my life. Right. And then I realized like, I don't really have a choice in the matter, you know? Yeah. It's amazing how much now that I've like come to terms with that, how, how much that feeling has just like flipped on its head. I really just don't care. Exactly. It, I feel like it seems like one of those big scary things because you've never experienced it. And then once you do it, you're like, oh, this isn't so bad. At least that's how it was for me. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I am like a professional medication taker now. I do. <laughs> I have several. I have to take medications at several different points throughout the day I can't take certain ones within like 15 minutes or half an hour of the other ones because there's no reaction there and it's like a whole production you know my medication schedule and to me it's just like oh this is just my life but when people actually spend you know a long period of time with me over the course of a day or a couple days they're like holy shit (laughs) you take (laughs) what are you doing (laughs) yeah like why are you taking so many pills you know and there's kind of an assumption there that I don't need all of them and and to be fair I don't actually necessarily need all of them but I regularly kind of evaluate you know what's working what isn't working do I need to stay on this should I try something else and you know, it's such a, it's such a personal thing. And like you said before, everyone's circumstances are so unique to them that, you know, it's really been an interesting learning experience for me, you know, kind of going through that transition. Right. Do you have any experience that you would like to share either with doctors telling you there's nothing wrong with you or those around you or even from yourself? Like, do you have a hard time taking your problems seriously? Yeah, it can be, it can be tough because like before this autoimmune stuff started, I was like really healthy besides the glaucoma. Like I didn't really have issues 
besides that, it was just, you know, like go to the pediatrician once a year, go to the eye specialist every few months. And other than that, that was good. And when this, like this past year, I guess it's really the past couple of years when like this pain and fatigue started, I was like, at first I'm like, maybe I'm not eating as well as I should be. So I'm like, let's eat more salads. And then like, maybe I'm not exercising as much. And then the pain in my knees really started. And I'm like, this, this is not working. And I was really asking my PCP, like, you know, can we please figure this out? And she's like, well, I think you're just depressed. I'm like, no, like, I don't think so. Because I feel happy. I'm just really tired. And I know that fatigue can be a symptom of depression. And I appreciate her acknowledging that. But I, I was like, I'm not trying any more pills until we figure out what's going on. And that's when I had was diagnosed with Hashimoto. So I just really pushed for that test because it still doesn't mean it's treated. And I, I don't know, I hear a lot about like meditation and mindfulness and mm-hmm. like I've had doctors suggest that and like that can be really helpful for some people. And like I do try those kinds of things, but it's not like, I don't think that's a cure for anything. Right. And I feel like it trivializes. And I've spoken to so many people with chronic illness who, like you, they know they've had these symptoms for decades, Mm -hmm. and they finally find a doctor who acknowledges it. And it's like the light at the end of a very, very long tunnel. Yes, you believe me. (laughs) Yeah, it's like the light at the end of the tunnel, and then you immediately go into another tunnel with like, oh, shit, what do I do now? (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's a mess. Are you familiar with the concept of imposter syndrome? Yes. I think I've heard of that. It's a concept that's really been getting more traction in the last few years, usually in relation to women in the workplace, feeling like they're not competent enough and they don't really know what they're doing and they feel like a fraud. But when it comes down to it, it turns out that like everyone feels that way and everyone feels like a fraud, you know. And what I found in talking to people about chronic illness and disability and stuff is that a lot of patients have this same sort of feeling like my problems don't matter as much because I'm not as bad as other people. Right. And I'm, I'm curious if that's something that you've experienced yourself. Yeah, definitely. Like, especially when I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's, I remember like posting a couple things on Facebook and all of a sudden, like all these women told me they also had Hashimoto's. I'm like, they're functioning really well. Like what's going on with me? Like they're working full time or like, you know, and I was actually working full time at the time as well. But, um, it's like, what's, what's going on with me, you know? Um, but then I realized, like, I was just in the stages of, mm-hmm. like, sorting it out. Like, they're probably have been treated for years, and I was not even being treated yet. So I'm like, I had to take a step back and be like, I have to stop comparing myself because that doesn't help anyone. Like, you don't know what else or what else someone's going through or how far they've been in yeah. their journey with their illness. So it's it's tough, especially to be involved with, like, different things with glaucoma and see what other people are going through and see other people like achieving so much with less vision or, you know, just, just different things. So I have to remind myself that we're all so different. Like no one has the exact same body I do and everything like that. Yeah. It's an important thing to to keep in mind. I think there's like an increasing awareness or most things kind of exist on a spectrum and we just haven't fully gotten to that understanding yet. Yeah. Yeah. So how have your medical issues affected your career? And have you left or kept any jobs for any reason specific to your health or had to like change your schedule around or anything like that? So far, not really. I actually, um, 
I like ended up leaving a job last year for kind of like some other reasons. And then right after that, I was diagnosed with this autoimmune stuff. So I was like, this was probably a blessing in disguise that, you know, things didn't really work out the way I wanted because um, now I get to focus on my health a little bit more. So that was really good. And I was like getting so tired at my job anyway. Like I was like taking naps at lunch and stuff like that. In terms of a glaucoma, like I don't drive because of my vision. Like I did the whole road uh, driving lessons thing, and it was it was pretty scary. <laughs> like just because my depth perception is so bad, and like unless I'm wearing contacts, which are really uncomfortable for me now, my peripheral vision, like you know, on the sides, is just not great. So like, I'd be in my boyfriend's car, and he'd be like. Uh, you know, you're missing that thing over there. I'm like, what thing over there? And he's like, this is not okay. <laughs> so, like, I passed the permit test. I can read the letters on the chart, but that's so much different than cars all around you. Oh, yeah. Totally different world. So I don't have my license, and um, a lot of jobs want you to have your license in a car, especially in social work. So, like, I'm trying to find a job where I can basically stay put all day, like, from 9 to 5 or whatever, and not have to go to, like, clients' houses because that's just tough to do with public transportation. Like, I'm willing to do it, but it's not that time-friendly. There's so many, like, unexpected factors that you have to account for with public transit. Like, I live 30 minutes north of Manhattan. You know, Uh theoretically, I should be able to just take the train in and take the subway all around. And and I have not been doing that in the last few years because I've had, you know, more problems with my health and everything. And I just did the other night. I took the train into the city and I took the subway to where I was going. And by the time I got there, I was like, well, I'm ready to go home because that was really exhausting. It's so tiring. And that was, that was a thing like I've experienced. Like I was at a job where I had to take three buses there each way. And it was like, by the time I got there, I was tired. And it's like, thank you for saying that. Because most people, I feel like if they haven't experienced that, especially if they don't have a chronic illness, they're like, you're just sitting on the bus. Like, what's the big deal? But there's the transfers and, like, the walking around people and the walking in between them, you know, Mm because usually the bus drops me off. I still have a few blocks to walk. So in winter, it's, like, not practical as much, especially last year here, the snow was just... Well, yeah, you're in Buffalo, right? Yeah, and it's funny that you say that because some people have told me, like, oh, just move to New York City because you can take the subway there. You're, like, shaking your head no. You know, it depends on your disabilities. For me, standing up is hard. You know, walking around is hard. There's not a lot of subway stops have an elevator or an escalator. Like, the right. vast majority of them don't. It's and so frustrating. Yeah, yeah and even if you're, you're not taking the stairs there's a lot of ramps up and down and up and down. And that's really exhausting to do too. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. I just read an article recently that I think only like one quarter of the New York City subways are accessible. Yeah. And like as defined by the ADA, I'm like, wow, that's sad. Yeah. And they're not always working, you know, like they might exist, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they work. And that's definitely a thing here. Like the escalator or the elevator at the train station is almost always broken. Like our train stations are a joke in the first place. (laughs) It just goes down Main Street. Like that's our train. But wow. it's um, the the escalator is always broken somewhere, and it's like. And another thing for me is that the stairs going down into the train station because it's underground are really poorly lit, mm-hmm. and um, you know how sometimes they'll paint like a yellow line on the end of each stair. That is so helpful to me, like just the contrast. But there's nothing like that, so like 
um, it's just really easy to trip and I've done it and it's just yeah. like, it's, it's not accessible or really vision friendly or anything or, yeah. you know, wheelchair friendly. Yeah. And these are things that like, when you talk about accessibility, most people, it wouldn't even occur to them that these things might be an issue for people. You right. know, say, well, there's a ramp. Well, it's really hard for me to walk downhill, you know? So, right. you yeah. know, people have such varied disabilities and like, exactly. So tell me about some of the other barriers to employment with disabilities like yours. Um, for me, it's mostly the driving thing. And then, like, I've had some frustration recently because there is a job that I was pretty sure wasn't going to require driving, but it was way too far for me to get to. It was going to be, like, an hour and a half commute each way. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of buses, a lot of walking. And I'm like, okay, in the summer, that's feasible, you know. But in the winter, like, no way am I going to be walking in the dark at night, you know, because it gets dark at, like, 5 or earlier in the snow, to get home like that's just not safe or okay to me yeah. um so like I had to turn down um an interview actually because I'm like this is just I didn't realize I was so far away um and it's interesting because like I live in the city so there is a lot of public transportation here but then so many like doctor's offices and even employment are like way out in the suburbs I think probably because the rent is cheaper there, you yeah. know, so it's like, I can't get out there, <laughs> you know, this job would be great, but I can't get out there, that's pretty much the only thing, like, once I get to the job, unless something is, like, really tiny print, you know, or something like that, I'm pretty much fine, fortunately, so it's really been the driving thing, which I feel like isn't really acknowledged so much, like, people talk about accommodations once you get to the workplace, but if getting to the workplace is the issue, like, they don't have that many solutions for that. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people have a really hard time with. I had a job where I was commuting an hour and a half each way. Oh, ouch. And, I, oh, God. And that was even before I started getting really sick. And yeah. it still just wiped me out. It yeah, that's so three hours of your day. Yeah, I mean, your commute, if you're doing it five days a week, that's 15 hours. That's a part-time job. That's so true. That's a great way to look at it. Yeah, it was really not fun. (laughs) Yeah. Can you tell me about Glaucoma Eyes and your work with the organization? Sure. So Glaucoma Eyes started as a support group, and it was started by uh, Nia Martin, who lives in Denmark. And she started it as a support group in 2008. And she started getting, like, so many more members in this group. Like, right now on Facebook, the support group is over 7,000 people. And, yeah, it's like, wow, all these people have glaucoma. And some of them are parents of kids with glaucoma, you know, trying to find out more. Even infants, you know, like parents of infants. Some of them are doctors, but most of us are glaucoma patients. And she saw a need for, you know, more awareness of glaucoma worldwide and wanted to do more. And she registered it as a non-governmental organization in, I think that was February. And then she asked me if I would be interested in being on the board of directors. And I was just so excited because this was also like a time when I was, you know, really like sick. And I was just like, oh, I can do this. You know, I can start getting involved in this in our Skype meetings and things like that while I'm in my house. (laughs) And like, I just love the idea of being involved in more patient support. So we're still kind of like getting things off the ground in some ways, but we're going to be 
creating like programs focused on patient awareness, like for doctors and medical staff. And we're hoping to like raise funds and go around the world and speak at different events. And we're still, you know, providing patient support online. And we're hoping to have like a lot of events worldwide for World Glaucoma Week, which is in March. So right now we're like getting ideas ready. So people can stay tuned with that. (laughs) That's really cool. That sounds really exciting. Yeah, thank you. Something I'm really excited about, like to bring that awareness and like education about patient experience um, to doctors, because I feel like the patient side of things is like so often left out. Yeah, definitely. Um, That's the whole reason I'm doing this podcast is like, there's so many conversations happening about the healthcare system and, you know, all of this, even about patient experience and so little of it involves actual patients, which is ridiculous. Yeah, but I think that's that's really all. I'm just so excited that patients like are being given more of a voice and especially with social media, like mm-hmm. the support groups I found and everything, like they didn't have that even 10 or 15 years ago. And it's just a big difference. Like I grew up, you know, with a really supportive family, but wondering like, am I the only one out there? Because oh, yeah. the only other time I met a girl with glaucoma was like, my family was on vacation in Michigan. We were on a boat. And there was this randomly, this other girl who was a little younger than me who had glaucoma. And I was like, wow. And I was 12, I think. And that was like so huge for me because I'd never met anyone else, um, especially that it had their lenses removed. It's just such a rare thing. Yeah. But now, like, I know people from all over the world, like, you know, who have glaucoma. And, like, I just think that the social, social media and patient support is – I think that's really pushing patients to feel like, hey, I do have a voice and I deserve to have a voice. And I love that. Yeah. And and they don't really like tell you that there are other people out there like you, especially if you have a rare disease or disorder. Like, no one tells you, hey, there's other people, not just people who have what you have, but people who have things that are similar or things that are completely different. But you still, I've found such community online with people that have completely different conditions than I do, but we have a lot of the similar, you know, trials and and stuff like that. So it's been a, a really cool opportunity and this podcast, especially because I'm able to just go to people and be like, I think you're interesting. I want to talk to you. And I have an excuse for it now, which is like, (laughs) I have this podcast. That's awesome. Yeah, it's been really fun to do. Do you have a hard time asking for help? I think I'm getting better at that because I feel like it used to be and I used to be worse. And like I feel like in a way being diagnosed with an autoimmune condition has kind of given me more courage to ask for help. It's like, yes, I have a legit thing. No, I'm not just, you know, having a bad day or something like this is a legitimate thing. And um like it's it's easier to be like you know especially when I was first starting the medication and so fatigued like I really don't have the energy to cook today or to like clean all these dishes today like I'll do it tomorrow and like to give myself kind of the freedom to say that and it was really hard before like I was really pushing myself like why am I gaining weight why am I so tired like what's wrong with me am I just really lazy like especially you know going into work and seeing people who have two or three or four kids at home I'm like, well, they're getting up and doing things. I don't even have any kids. Like, yeah. I should be able to have more I am, energy. I am <laughs> nodding emphatically in agreement with you <laughs> because I look at people who have kids, you know, whether, I mean, if they have a, a chronic illness, like, 
it's even more impressive. But exactly. like, even yeah. if they're totally healthy, I'm like, how are you doing that? You get up every day <laughs> yeah. and like you care for these tiny humans and you keep them alive and you feed them. And like, I can't even do that for myself. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, and even, you know, people would tell me like, oh, you're so lucky. You don't have kids. You must have so much free time and so much energy. I'm like, oh, <laughs> if only that were true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the free time, yes, but the energy was not so much. Yeah, that I can definitely identify with. Can you give me a snapshot of a time when somebody said or did something that was really clueless or inconsiderate about your medical condition? <laughs> just laughing everybody laughs at that question yeah Yeah. I one thing I got a lot and sometimes still get is like why don't you just get LASIK from my (laughs) eyes people are like just get more vitamin A just eat more carrots or like just get the LASIK surgery that helped me my daughter had LASIK I'm like what does it have to do with anything like that's fantastic for you but like that wouldn't do anything for me because I don't have lenses in my eyes so like it just wouldn't do anything like there's nothing to correct yeah. there you're just um, shooting a laser in your eye for no reason yeah it's like uh, that sounds like fun but no and people are well-meaning and then another thing with the glaucoma surgeries is that they don't improve vision they keep your vision stable like that's the goal mm-hmm. so people will think i have better vision after these surgeries and i actually lost vision from a couple of the surgeries just because they didn't go as planned or whatever I'm like no like i'll tell people you know like i'm still not driving or whatever they're like oh i thought that surgery fixed that i'm like no. I try to be patient, especially because glaucoma is like a rare thing. People don't know. Oh, I get asked all the time if I just smoke weed for glaucoma. And it's also illegal here. So I feel like it's kind of like, I don't know, I guess insensitive to ask yeah. that. Like, do you do this illegal activity too? You know, <laughs> it's like none of your business. But there's just a lot of misconceptions. And people usually mean well. And I try to keep that in mind. But when you repeat yourself so many times, it becomes frustrating. Yeah, it is really frustrating. The The comment about eating more carrots and getting more vitamin A is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> like, that doesn't even work for people with like normal run of the mill vision problems. You yeah. Know? That's so yeah. funny. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Uh, have you had any of your friends like disappear on you? Yeah. <laughs> um, especially like last year before I was diagnosed, like I was still trying to figure out um, like what was going on and why I was so tired. And like some people just, you know, they want to go out, they want to party and they don't understand that like, it's not that I don't want to hang out with you. I'd love to hang out with you. I just don't have the energy to like go clubbing with you for five hours. Right. And I'm also sort of like an introverted person. So those two together is like, no, I don't want to go out with you and 20 people all night because I'm going to be exhausted. But I'd love to just hang out with you and go get some coffee or something. And some people that's like a slap in the face. Like, why don't you want to do things with me? So Mm. it's hard. But for the most part, like I've had, I have a few like really close friends and I'm really grateful because I have friends that'll check in on me and ask how I'm doing. And that's, that's so appreciated. Like, it means a lot. Yeah, that's great. You have people that are willing to, you know, kind of alter their plans or, or something yeah. like that to, you know, yeah. kind of accommodate you. Because I run into, well, not as much anymore now that I've kind of like been like, this is the deal. And <laughs> you can either take it or leave it. Exactly. Um, but, you know, like before I really knew what was going on, it was hard to explain to people that, like, I can't do those kind of things. Like, I just... All of the things that are, you know, quote unquote fun for people my age are actually 
really yeah. not fun for me anymore. Yes. That's yeah. such a way to put it. And it's like, you know, I've been told like, oh, you just don't want to have fun. And I'm like, no, it's just that our ideas of fun are different. And that something you do that might be fun for you is really not for me. Like, or if, it, it, if it would be fun, it would like the consequences of having that kind of fun are so much greater than like the benefit exactly. of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hard to explain that to people who haven't really dealt with this kind of stuff before. Oh, yeah. Definitely. What do you think might be different if people knew what you go through every day? I feel like it's hard to say because people have such different reactions. Like I have, you know, I have a few like closer friends who they do know to an extent of what I go through. And like one of my friends a few weeks ago, like I was done um, working at my part-time job. If she hears this, she'll know it's her, but that's okay. And she was like, do you want to hang out now? Or are you, you know, are you wiped? Do you want to go home and rest? And that just meant so much to me. Like that acknowledgement of like, do you want to hang out now? Or do you want to go home and rest first? Mm -hmm. And like that kind of thing would be incredible from other people. But I'm not sure that everyone knowing about what I go through would result in that. Because some people, you know, even when they hear like, Hashimoto's or autoimmune, they're still like, I'll just get over it. You know, like, I'll just try going gluten free. Or, right. you know, they still, I feel like it would result in more kindness from some people and more unsolicited advice from others. So. That's for sure. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to say. People really overestimate the uh, the efficacy of exercise and, and d dietary changes. I mean, they can yeah. be monumental for some exactly. people, but for a lot of yeah. us, they're just a very tiny piece of a much more comprehensive kind of approach to... Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's very obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything that you beat yourself up for? Oh, that's a really good question. Just with... I guess like the employment is like, I feel like, you know, some people are, you know, in these great like full-time jobs and I, I want to be there. And it's, it's tough with like, with, you know, not driving and things like that. It's like the, um, the, the number of jobs I can apply to are more limited, but I, I really like, I think a lot of that comes from comparing myself to where other people are like a lot of that, just like dissatisfaction or beating myself up. And I really try not to do that. Like yeah. it happens. I'm definitely not perfect, but I try to catch myself and be like, stop, you know, just don't do that because I catch myself thinking like, oh, I should be exercising more or I should be I don't know like volunteering even more and like things like that and things I wish I had like more energy to do yeah I'm right there with you <laughs> <laughs> and I think also I mean with the employment thing you know culturally if you are not working it uh, affects how valuable you are to our culture and that doesn't necessarily mean you're any less valuable if you're not able to work for whatever reason but that's just the way that our culture approaches that which is really unfortunate yeah. because there's plenty of other ways to be you know a quote-unquote productive member of society that don't right. actually include formal employment. Right. You know? Yeah, that's so true. It's like really expected. But even like with the economy now, like I have friends who are completely, you know, able-bodied and not sick and they're still having trouble finding jobs. Like mm -hmm. it's kind of, so I have to remind myself that like we're all doing our own thing. Yeah. So. Our generation at least has that as an excuse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is there anything that you worry about a lot with your health? Like, is it anything big or small that kind of, like, takes up a lot of space in your brain? Just, you know, seeing the way, like, right now my um, 
my dad really takes care of his parents so much, especially because they don't speak much English. So he'll, you know, like help them with their mail and their bills, like reading them and taking them to the doctor. And he just does so much. And I catch myself, honestly, like I think my biggest thing is like, will I be able to do that for my parents when I'm older? Because I would love to be able to. Like, you know, my parents aren't that young. And um, especially because... You know, I'm adopted, so I was adopted a little later than maybe a kid would have been born or whatever. And, like, they're both really healthy, thank goodness. But it's, like, I really hope that I'll be able to, like, extend that back to them, like, the way they got me to all my doctor's appointments. Like, am I going to be able to do that? So for me, that's, like, a big thing. And my brother, my younger brother, too. Like, I just hope I can be there for him, um, like, as he gets older and stuff like that. Hmm. Yeah. Now, with your vision, like, is there, is it inevitable that you'll lose your vision entirely? Or what does the the future look like, no pun intended, for you (laughs) with your visual impairment? Um, I'm hoping that I don't, you know, lose much more, at least like in the immediate future, because for the past few years, it's been pretty stable. Like, I've been really lucky since I had that last surgery. And in my right eye, my vision with correction is actually like 2025. It's really good. Uh-huh. Yeah, because yeah, this eye is like the annoying one that always does weird things. And then this eye is just kind of chilling like and being calm, which is great. So I just hope that that continues um, because I really only use my right eye because they don't work together and it's weird. Um, but like I, I really hope that I can maintain the vision that I have. And it's really hard to say. I know this isn't like a concrete answer, so I'm sorry. Oh, no, I, I'm, I'm never looking for concrete answers. So go <laughs> to town. Yeah, it's like, I mean, I've spoken to some people who were maintaining their vision and then all of a sudden their glaucoma got worse and they lost a lot of vision. But like the idea is and the hope is that if you keep up with your medication, like your eye drops and going to your eye doctor and things like that, you should be able to maintain that vision if you keep up with the treatment which is great and now they're starting to do like stem cell nerve regeneration like trials with that and I'm so excited that I'm starting to see that in my lifetime because that's incredible like if you can regenerate someone's nerves you can give them back lost vision but it's all like very preliminary but it's yeah. so really exciting because right now I feel like some people don't know this and it's like it's a scary thing but if you lose vision from glaucoma right now, there's no way you can get it back. Like there's no treatment that's going to magically bring that vision back in your eyes. So that's why like the early detection and treatment is so important. You might've just answered this question, which is (laughs) what are your goals and priorities with the management of your condition? Yeah. With glaucoma, it's just like keep things where they are because that's really the best I can do and the best I can hope for. And that's, you know, that's fine with me. Um, and with the autoimmune stuff, I'm still figuring it out. I would just like to get to like the root of it as much as I can. Not just like you said, not just like, oh, this is just anxiety. You know, what is actually causing this and how can I treat it instead of just masking it and covering it up? So I'm really glad I found this rheumatologist because she really wants to find out what's going on. And I love that. She just really wants to get to the bottom of it. And I just like, I want to be the best version of myself. Like I want to have as much energy and things like that to be able to do the things that I want to do. And I guess that's, that's the goal. (laughs) That sounds like a pretty solid one. Thanks. (laughs) Um, Do you have any advice for somebody that might've just gotten diagnosed? Let's say somebody was just diagnosed this morning. What would you say to them? I would say it probably sounds silly and like, uh, 
I don't want it to sound like trivializing, but like, don't freak out because there's always, there's always like hope out there and there's always support groups and, um, ask a lot of questions is another thing I would mm-hmm. say is, you know, like give yourself that time to be like, oh, you know, this is terrible. I'm going to have to deal with this maybe the rest of my life and let yourself kind of grieve over that. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, there's still going to be good things. There's still going to be better things. And I feel like sometimes, you know, we f- like we forget about that, even with glaucoma, you know, like, oh, I'm going to go blind. You might not ever go blind. I think like just keeping up that hope is really important and like being assertive about asking questions. And if you don't get that from a doctor, like if they're trivi- trivializing your questions, if you're able to get a second opinion, because sometimes there aren't great doctors and like, you know, out there and that's, that's a problem. Um, definitely asking questions, like doing your own research, but also being careful not to believe everything you read. Cause there's some really weird things on the internet. There's a lot of garbage on the internet for sure. It's like, just eat this food and you'll be cured. It's like, no, it's not how it works. If anyone's telling you that they can cure your incurable disease, turn around and run away as fast as you can because generally (laughs) they're just trying to sell you something or take advantage of you in some way and it's you know there's a lot of people out there like that and I run into them almost constantly and it just you know it's really upsetting because I know that there are so many people out there who don't have the tools that I have to be able to you know evaluate and verify that information exactly yeah well Thank you for your time and sharing your story and all of your wonderful insight with us. Thank you for having me. That was great. Yeah, it was fun talk. The last time that we talked, you had just had the nuclear bone scan and you had got your lab results, but hadn't actually seen your rheumatologist yet. Um, yes. Has anything changed for you health-wise since we last spoke? You know, it's really funny because I went in there and um, she told me that the bone scan was normal, which I had trouble believing because like, I have so much inflammation and pain around my chest, like the costochondritis in my knees and my jaw. I was sure that something would show. And she said that... Um, while some of the blood tests showed um, like maybe rheumatoid arthritis could start in a few years, it was not like clinically significant yet. Mm-hmm. So like I almost felt like a fraud. I'm like, Aww. what is going on? You know, and she – but she, my rheumatologist is a really sweet lady and she said, you know, I'm still taking this really seriously. We're going to say that it's fibromyalgia Um, And maybe it's related to, like, the autoimmune Hashimoto's thyroid stuff as well. So I'm still on the the prescription NSAID that I was on, and I'm going to follow up with her. So I was just surprised that they didn't find anything when I waited so long for this appointment. But that's okay. Like, I didn't realize fibromyalgia encompassed all of this or could. (laughs) Yeah, it's so frustrating. I know exactly what that feels like to you know, be waiting and waiting for your test results. And it's like, well, it didn't show anything. And just feel like, (laughs) how is that even possible? You know, I definitely have run into that pretty much with almost every diagnostic test that I have done. I'm just like, how does it not show anything? It's ridiculous. It's so frustrating. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry that you didn't really get any further definitive answers. But it sounds like your doctor is at least taking you seriously, which is... You yeah, know, helpful. Yeah, she's really sweet. So I feel lucky to 
have at least found her and not someone who's like, oh, nothing shows, so I don't believe you. you know? Right, so, and just but... sends you on your way and is right. going to follow <laughs> up with you, you know. So, yeah, that sucks. Uh, do you want to talk about Flip the Script at all? Yes. Yeah, so I don't know how much I talked about this in the last interview, if at all, but a few months ago, it was actually probably closer to half a year ago, I saw that editors of these adoption books which uh, they get people who are adopted to contribute to these books. So it's all adoptee voices. They were looking for people to submit a story about their own adoption experience. And I thought, how cool is that, that they're giving adoptees a voice? And um, I submitted a little thing I had written and had published a couple in a couple other magazines. Kind of forgot about it, honestly. <laughs> and then actually when I was in Poland meeting my birth mother, I found out through email that I had made the cut. And I kind of had spotty Wi-Fi there. And I think it kind of slipped my mind. I was like, oh, okay, I'll look at that when I get home type thing. And then when I got home, I'm like, wow. <laughs> so um, I'm really excited. And the book was just released and it's called Flip the Script, Adult Adoptee Anthology. And I just ordered a bunch of books for myself and I'm really excited to receive them. And I think it's really cool because there's adoptees from all over the world, 50 of us, with all, all different experiences. And some people submitted artwork, some people submitted poetry. And I think it's really amazing to see all of our experiences especially since I feel that a lot of times in the adoption narrative, it's adoptive parents that get a voice. And they should get a voice, but I feel like sometimes adoptees' voices are pushed out, and I love that they're being highlighted in this book. So I think it's great. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. Um, have you gotten a chance to read through the whole thing yet? You know, I haven't. It's really funny because I got to see uh, like the manuscript before it went to the editor just so we could check for any errors that might mm -hmm. be there and correct them. So, you know, I have no excuse. I could have read through <laughs> it, but I haven't. It is 200 pages. So I want to sit down when I get the book and actually like devote, you know, um, some time to like digesting it all. I'm really excited to read everybody's piece. Yeah, that that is really exciting. I actually would really like to to read that because I'm sure there's a lot of like questions that you have as an adoptee growing up. Like you talked about in our yeah. first interview that your your parents that you grew up with had had no health history for you and like really didn't know what to expect and and so yeah. it's that's really interesting because you're kind of, you just find things out, you know, by accident over the course of your life. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And I read this really interesting article. This um, One of the adoptee contributors to this book, she has a blog called The Declassified Adoptee, and she writes a lot about her adoption experience. And she had this one article called um, Why My Birth Certificate is a Lie. And she was talking about how when she was adopted, they amended the certificate to put on her adoptive parents' names. And she was pointing out that a birth certificate is not a parent certificate. It's mm. a birth certificate. So you shouldn't have your adoptive parents' names on it, you know, because it's it's not true. It's not what really happened. And it's like from the very beginning, you have this, like, lack of information, like it's hidden. And that's really frustrating. It's like people mean well, but some people can't even access their birth certificates at all, like their mm -hmm. original history, their original names, where they were born. It's just, it, it blows my mind. Like this one woman said that the social worker was sitting across from her with her folder full of information and couldn't legally give it to her. And it was her information. Oh. It's like there just needs to be so much change because... 
I feel like everybody has the right to know about their health history and oh, definitely. where it's they so came important. from. Exactly, you know, and I know as people with like chronic illness, we prob- we especially understand like it's so critical to have that information, but it's withheld from so many people. It's really sad. Yeah, that is really sad. Was there anything, I mean, I'm sure when you were in Poland and meeting your birth mom and your brother and everything that there was just like constant revelations, but was... <laughs> Was there anything that really stood out to you that you learned health-wise while you were there? Well, (laughs) I heard from the women at the orphanage that my birth mother, like, was probably sick during uh, my or during her pregnancy. I'm sorry, with me, and um, I did bring it up to her because I was really lucky to have someone translating for us. So I thought this is going to be like, if I don't ask now, it's now or never type thing. And I didn't want to hurt her feelings, but I just wanted to ask. And I tried to make it really clear. Like, I'm not trying to place any blame. I just, you know, want to understand where some of my health issues might have come from. And she was really upset about that. Um, So I just ended up dropping it because I thought, you know, you can't go back in time and change it anyway. So whatever. Um, But it's um especially back in 1990 1991 you know when i was a fetus i guess <laughs> when i was born the medical care there was not as great or not as good as it is in the states um and poland was just coming out of communism and things like that so they were a little bit behind and i was lucky to have good care there i had my first eye surgery there but Still, I don't think she had, like, the fancy prenatal vitamins that we have here or, you know, the checks that you get every couple months or however frequent that is. I don't really know. But I I don't think she had that. She was telling me that um, she took vitamins, like, just regular vitamins from the drugstore, whatever. So I just don't – I think that there were – there was a lot of lack of access. Mm And it really made me think because, you know, doctors here will say things like, oh, you're too young for that or how'd you get that? And it's just such silly things to say. Like, how does that help anyone? But um, <laughs> but it's like, I, I think we forget that not, even if, even if, you know, I'm pretty privileged now and I can eat pretty healthy, my birth mother might not have been able to mm-hmm. while she was pregnant with me and like, you know, that can really contribute to development and everything like that. So it's it's easy to forget that part, but it's such a critical part of our development. So oh, yeah, prenatal care is, is really super important, not just for the yeah. baby, but for the mother as well. I mean, not having access to prenatal care raises maternal death rates by, you know, unbelievable amounts. So mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's it's frustrating that you have to run into that with doctors here who, you know, might forget that even I mean, even within this country, not everyone has access. Exactly. To that exactly. Sort of thing. Yeah, it's so true. Thank you for listening to In Sickness and In Health. Check out the show notes for links to some of the stuff we talk about in this episode, including a link to purchase Flip the Script and more information about glaucoma and Beata's other conditions. Subscribe and stay tuned for everything we have to come. And check out our dysautonomia series from our first week. Let us know what you've liked about the show so far. Please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. And tell your family, tell your friends, tell your doctors. But most importantly, don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other.